And we are live. Hey, up. Hey, up, mate. How are we doing? <laughs> oh, man, it's weird. We were just saying earlier that we're like eight miles away from each other and we're having to do this <laughs> over Zoom. And we are definitely going to talk in way more Yorkshire accents than uh, than I normally do. <laughs> yeah, we apologise in advance for the Game of Thrones uh, speak. <laughs> That's, everybody gets that, though. That's what I always say. It's We're from that place in... Uh, in England, where we've got that Game of Thrones Jon Snow accent, people get it instantly. Yeah, that's that's the easiest way to portray it. Like most people think, like you're Scottish or something like that originally. Then you're like, no, 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 Game of Thrones, Jon Snow, Sean Bean. There you go. <laughs> so how are you? How's things? Yeah, mate, I'm good. I'm good. It seems like uh, a long time since we've spoken in person. I guess, well, as in person as we can be in uh, at the moment. Yeah, it is. It's. It feels like both, it's been a really long time and a really short time. It feels feels mm. like we've been in lockdown in UK forever, but it's gone so quickly. And for you, things have completely changed pretty much in mm. lockdown, haven't they? Yeah, kind of. I think I was just like a very bored person. And then lockdown came and just gave me a lot of time to try everything that I ever wanted to do. And, you know, throw a lot of shit at the wall, basically, and uh, see what sticks. And it's, uh, yeah, it's been good for my productivity anyway. Yours as well, mate, I've noticed. (laughs) Well, there's no no better to do, is there? You haven't got, uh, sorry, I haven't got anything better to do. (laughs) There's no better to do. Yeah, well, there's... There's there's not been, though, has there? That's exactly it, you know. Like obviously we used to like going out and having a few beers, going out football and things like that. But when you've got that taken away from you, I guess the productive monster inside you awakens to some extent with all this spare time. And that's definitely what happened with me. And yeah, like I said before, I've noticed your productivity and output this last year and a half has been fascinating to watch, mate. Well, my output is directly related to your output and that's really what, we're here to talk about so you Mm. in so in 2020 last year february i saw what you was doing on twitter so Mm -hmm. twitter.com forward slash tom underscore hurst um around then well around february last year how many followers would you have had a thousand or something a couple of thousand yeah less than a thousand um probably about 800 something like that yeah, and, and you'd started to get into, well, I were looking at your tweets and thinking, who is this guy? I know this guy, and, he, and, he's, <laughs> and he's writing these tweets in a, in a really weird way. Um, and, and by weird, what I mean is that you were actually writing valuable tweets. You were actually <clears throat> talking about web development and how to be a freelancer more specifically, because you're a web developer, um, yep. freelance web developer. So I started looking at the way that you were writing tweets and the only thing you were doing on Twitter. So at this point, I was looking at you writing tweets. I was just writing tweets about whatever came into my head. I weren't, you know, I was just pissing around on Twitter. And Mm. seeing your tweets, the only thing that you were tweeting was valuable tweets. You were starting to get some traction. And I saw that and I thought, I'm going to try that. And... I had a look at your Twitter. I had a look at how you were doing it. So they were from Hype mm. Fury. And that's when I signed up for a Hype Fury account. So you were probably, I think you were maybe four or five months in front of me in, in terms of quote unquote taking Twitter seriously. W- what made you do it? Why did you start doing it? I think what it was, uh, like I said before, I was bored. I know, I know that sounds like really a bit of a stupid answer, but I was kind of fatigued, you know, with the client work and things like that, as, as you'll relate to, you know, when we've been doing this, obviously you've been doing the design stuff. I've been doing the web dev stuff for a long time. And I kind of felt, I got to a point where I felt I had a bit more to offer. And I kind of saw what people were doing in the creator space with digital products and things like that. I saw a lot of people having pretty good success stories. Um, So I thought if I'm going to try and sell digital products, then I'm going to need some kind of audience. Yeah. And yeah. So I went with the whole audience first approach really for that. 
and that's why that's why I started tweeting about what I know and what I know best, which is, you know, being self-employed for 12 years. So you started taking Twitter seriously because you knew you wanted to make digital products. That was always the goal. Yeah, I, I knew that I wanted to expand beyond my, you know, freelance work, essentially. I knew that I wanted to get into some kind of creation because, you know, for fulfillment, to help other people, to monetize. So I knew that if I wanted to do that, I'm going to need some kind of platform. And yeah, I just did what everybody says that you should do, basically. <laughs> Scale back right to what you think you know, you know, more than anyone else or more than average, you know, um, and just be consistent in tweeting, you know, things that relate to your experience and start to pick up traction and yeah the rest the rest kind of history really yeah so you were writing i don't know five ten tweets good tweets every single day and yeah. then they were there were a couple of points and i remember specifically one of the points because i was dming you about it while it was happening is you <laughs> you wrote the pricing pricing uh, freelance projects thread didn't you yeah and that thread ended up getting thousands of retweets, thousands of likes. Uh, it just went insane, didn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You tell it from your point of view. I don't want to yeah. put words I mean, uh, obviously I was using Hype Fury to schedule tweets. I was doing like between five and 10 a day, as you said, just like normally like one-liner tweets. Uh, but every now and again, I would do a thread. And pricing freelance projects was just another tweet for me. I really didn't see it being any different, you know, to anything else that I'd put out before. I just thought, you know, this is just another thread that I've done. I think it was like maybe my fifth or sixth thread. Um, and yeah, it just went absolutely crazy from minute one. Um, I think it's got something like 37,000 likes on it, which is the most I've seen, apart from like a Naval tweet or something like that, the most of an account with like, I think I had like 3,000 followers at that point. Yeah. So to get that much attention, and I think it had something like 2 million um, impressions. And yeah, it kind of just opened my eyes to what is actually possible on Twitter as a platform for free and how overpowered it is. I mean, we've spoke about that kind of before, that, that we think that Twitter's kind of the best bang for your buck in getting your message out there. And I think that that tweet, which kind of set me off properly, proves that to an extent. Well, I think you, yeah, you were at two or 3,000 followers then. And, and didn't that have mm. like five or 6,000 followers overnight or something? It was like four and a half thousand overnight, yeah. And yeah. It, the, the notifications coming in, it's like, I mean, I've written a few um, popular tweets since that, but nothing's been as you know big as that one like the notifications coming through were just i had to just i had to delete twitter app off my phone and just put it put it to one side because i was kind of getting a bit addicted you know it's that dopamine hit i'm like oh plus 20 plus 20 every time i refreshed it and i'm like yeah this is getting a bit too much i'm getting a bit obsessed with this put it up put it to one side and go go for a walk or something but yeah it was just uh crazy and then obviously off the back of that i realized that I must know what I'm talking about on this uh, topic. So yeah, I decided to write the book about it after. So so even at that point, right, did you feel a little bit like you didn't know what you were talking about, that you were just some kid from Barnsley and you shouldn't be saying this online? Um, I, I kind of knew that I knew pricing and I, and I know that I know freelancing because that's what I've been, done so successfully for the last, you know, 12 years. So I had some confidence in putting it out there, but I, I think that the fact that people liked it so much and the opportunities that it brought thereafter was more of a, like a, it just reaffirmed basically and made me even more confident to keep sharing. Um, so I think I had the baseline level of confidence already. I think I'd broken down that barrier that all content creators have in the beginning already. But I think that when that tweet went so viral and popular, it just made me think, yeah, you know what, you know what you're talking about and keep going. Yeah. And and then you obviously made the product, so the digital product, pricing freelance projects. Mm -hmm. And that was your first paid product, wasn't it? Yeah. So I'd had a free um, ebook before, which I use as a bit of a lead magnet. 
to get to like gather email addresses and just to have something that I can give to everyone because obviously not everyone can afford a $39 ebook. So, you know, there's a little segment about pricing in the free one as well though. So if they want to get that, they can. Um, but yeah, pricing freelance projects was the first paid uh, product that I launched on the back of that tweet. And what happened when you launched it? Uh, yeah, I got interest straight away. I think for some strange reason, I expected more traction than what it got. Like obviously the tweet went so like wide ranging and so far and got me so many followers. I think that I thought, yeah, I can just create this and put it up for whatever price I want and it's going to sell. And that didn't quite transpire. So I wasn't disappointed because I did get traction, but it didn't go quite as, I think there's a big difference between sharing free value and then trying to productize. Mm -hmm. And I think that because I'm so early on in this creator journey, I kind of misread the scenario a little bit and priced it perhaps a little bit too high. Um, so where did you yeah, go I mean, first? Where did you start? What price did you start it at? I think I put it up at $19 as a pre-order, but I didn't really know at the time how big the book would be. I thought it would be just a, sh a short guide and it ended up being um, 30,000 or 35,000 words. Um, but I wrote it in 30 days and I think that I decided to price it at $39 like the day before because I was really aware of how hard I'd worked in those 30 days. I'm like, it's worth more. The plan was to do it for like 25. Like, it's worth more than 25. Yeah. It's worth 39. I've, I've worked my knackers off for this, you know. Like I, I need to, uh, you know, get a bit more money back for it. But yeah, I think in hindsight, because of where I was at that moment in time in, in terms of my audience and my journey, I don't think I had the authority quite then to sell it for 39. But I mean, in hindsight, it's still continued to sell at that price now. And it still, you know, brings in money trickling in. So yeah, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a hard one when you're starting out, you know, the whole pricing thing. Um, and one thing that I have learned is that pricing services and pricing products is quite different. And there's a lot of nuance in between. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it's, it's really different. I'm still trying to work out how to price products. I did, I've done a couple of things. I made, I put a book on Gumroad when I first started messing with Twitter and I think I only had about 2,000 followers at that point. And mm. I put that on, on Gumroad uh, and I didn't I didn't know how much I was going to charge for it. And at first I put it up for a dollar, I think, and then I increased it to $5 and then 15 quid or whatever the equivalent is. Yeah. Uh, and I had sales at every level, but... I, the reason I had it so low at the beginning is because I, I didn't think anybody would buy it, but I didn't want to offer it for free. So mm. I still did it kind of just to prove, I don't know, I guess to prove to myself, yeah, like what you were saying, yeah, you know what you're talking about. Yeah, people are interested in you. With with that, I wish I'd not launched it so early. I think mm. I, I launched it too early because now the whole launch cycle of that is completely gone. And... I followed it up with another another quick thing that I made from visualizations and the launch cycle of that's all gone as well. That, that's that's one of the hard things I find. I don't know if, if you feel the same, that whilst you're making it, there's loads of interest. And then as soon yeah. as you've made it and it's out, things trickle off really quick. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it's the whole building public thing. And when your momentum's going on the product itself, You've got, you know, your, your sawdust, as Jack Butcher would call it, to sell on uh, Twitter as you go in. So you get that kind of marketing as a free byproduct while you're in the creation phase. But then when you launch, it's kind of like, feels like ages ago, you know, like two or three weeks ago since I launched um, the, the last course that I did. And it just feels like ages away so quick because you don't really find an excuse to talk about it anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I did kind of try and be a little bit, um, take a little bit of a different approach with the uh, personal website playbook course that I did, that I, I launched in uh, January. And my idea there was to launch it cheap and just raise the price every month. So I've kind of got that marketing angle, mm. that, that marketing angle that's going to last just, well, it's going to last past the launch cycle, if you get what I'm trying to say. So I think um, what I did with that one is start it at twenty four dollars, 
get as much, you know, social proof and early adopters feedback as I can. And then every month since I've raised the price and, and like what you said with your product, I've noticed sales at every price point. So it just adds to the mix that <laughs> the confusing mix even further of pricing products and perception and things like that. It's uh, it's a tricky one, but I think that the main thing is just to test and experiment like crazy and just see, get to that point where the sale, the sales completely stop and I think that that's the way that I'm going to keep taking my products in future is to let the early adopters, those that believe in you early on, get it, you know, as cheap as, as, as they can get that social proof in early, add that to your product page and then increase the price over time to prevent that problem that you identified where after an initial launch, you've just got no reason really, unless you update the product to keep talking about it. Yeah, I've seen another couple of people as well doing it where when you pre-order it, there's a certain amount of versions of it available at one price and then another mm. price and it tears up and up and up. So first 10 might be $2, first 20 might be $5, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen that work, but it feels a bit weird to me to do it like that because it's a digital product and there isn't 10 available there's a, yeah. an unlimited amount available but then when you start thinking about it too much none at none at ways feel right because then when you increase price you're like well it used to be this price and aren't those other people going to be pissed off that it used to be this price and then when you put it on sale are people going to be annoyed that it's on sale now when they paid full price and oh it, it's yeah it's not as easy as pricing services that, no way no it's a minefield. It really, really is. And I don't think there's one right or wrong way. I mean, the one thing that I do like about the reverse sale is that you can't really piss people off that have bought it early because they got it the cheapest. So that, that's what I'm calling my uh, tactic, like a reverse sale. So start it cheaper than what I really intend it to be mm. and then scale it up. And then obviously the early, early adopters got it cheaper. So they can't really be, you can't really piss anybody off because the people that buy it at the higher price or want it at the higher price, they could have bought it earlier if they wanted. So mm. I think that's probably the, the nicest way of doing it that I've found. But yeah, I completely agree on the, you know, the numbers thing, 10 copies left at this thing. It just feels a little bit disingenuous to me. And I would rather do it on like a time-based increment as opposed to, item based when it's a digital product that has no stock mm. so you've got is it three products now yeah yeah so i've got the free one which is like my lead magnet and then um the pricing freelance projects ebook and personal website playbook video course so that's that's a that's quite a lot of products to have made in in probably less than a year and um, yeah last end of last april yeah started so what do you think about the difference between making products now and selling your time and your services? I've never really been a proponent of selling my time in terms of as granularly as hours anyway. I've always mm. done fixed price. At like from being yeah, maybe two years in, I've never sold hours. Um, I've done day rate where it made sense if I needed a bit of quick cash. Um, but I'd always do a day as a day and not eight hours, if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, but yeah, in terms of the balance between them, I think, I think full-time creator and product sales is a lot harder than what a lot of people think. And it's not, it's not as completely passive as what people think either. It's, so, it's not passive at all, unless you're Jack exactly. Butcher and you can make a million dollars from it. <laughs> Yeah, but, but it's not even passive for Jack. And I think he's he's posted some things about this before as well, where, you know, when he stops tweeting about his business or he stops doing his Instagram, then his, his revenue takes a hit. And even at my scale, which is, you know, 100 times smaller, I notice exactly the same things. If, if I don't get my offers under people's noses regularly, then the sales drop. You know, it's, yeah. it's not passive income. And I think that the creator dream is... Uh, there's a lot of outliers, sorry, there's a few outliers that make it look easier than what it is. But what people fail to realize is the level of consistency that these guys are and girls are putting out is unbelievable. And how hard that is to keep up that high quality bar so consistently. 
Um, but I mean, to answer your question about how I would divide my time between creation and selling, you know, services, I think I'll always do a bit of both because I enjoy both. And I think that the, they can complement each other as well. Um, I'm someone who loses attention on things quite easily. I do a lot of stuff and to have, you know, I've got like a whiteboard up here where I've just got plans, uh, you know, all my digital products on one side, you know, some other business ideas, service um, ideas, um, the agency thing that I've just launched, you know, I've, I like to have a lot of things going off and I, it just keeps me fresh and keeps me, um, gives me opportunities really to expose myself to upside and when one thing needs a bit more attention than another, I can focus on that, I can double down on it as and when. Um, I, I call like my different business ideas, it's like having kids, you know, you love them all the same, even if they need different, you know, amounts of attention at different moments in time. Yeah, I, I, you're right. They, they do complement each other. And I think with the kind of, the way that me and you are, so I'm a designer and you're a developer, the things that we make off the back of that, we still need to be doing the other thing. Otherwise, you're not reinforcing the message that you're putting across, are you? If if I'm yeah. if I'm um, selling a, a design product like the book I'm working on that's about design, if I'm not a practicing designer anymore, that becomes like a much more difficult sell for 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 me to make. And also personally, how I feel inside, I'll, I'd feel like a bit of a fraud if if I were making mm. design products and I weren't weren't a designer anymore. And then on the flip side, like you said, it helps to legitimize <clears throat> it helps to legitimize my actual agency work. So when I've had it a few times now, a few clients have come directly from Twitter or they've seen what I'm doing on Twitter and then it <clears throat> it legitimizes their choice because they can see always oh, uh is an influence from shit or something like that. <laughs> so it, <clears throat> it, well what what it really does is and I wish I'd learned this sooner. You probably feel the same way. What it really does is that when I'm talking about design and consistency and all this kind of thing every day, when it comes to choosing a designer or an agency and they stumble across my Twitter, they're like, well, why would we not choose the person who's talking about the thing that we want to hire them for? Mm -hmm. That was the thing that I didn't learn for 14 years or yeah. something like that. Exactly. It's it's like the personal brand flywheel effect of practicing what you preach, teaching what you preach, and also having your skin in the game, you know, with your hands in the guts of everything as well. And I think that it does, there comes a point where you think, it, it, for instance, going back to the question that you asked before, if, if I went into complete full-time digital products, teaching, freelancing, development or business or marketing or personal branding or whatever the things that I talk about, I would feel completely disingenuous if I wasn't doing at least some of that as well alongside, you know, in the real world. Because like, if, if you want to learn from, you want to learn from the people who are practicing what they preach. And I think that the people who don't practice what they preach or have got no experience in what they're teaching are the ones that give the digital product game a bit of a bad name. Well, another thing is as well that I've now been running an agency 10 years. I've been a designer for 15 years. This is when you start cashing in. This is the time. Exactly. Yeah, this is the time right now. This is the time when you start charging good prices, when you have a conversation with a new client and they say, how long you've been going? You say 10 mm -hmm. years. They go, ooh, that, it, it, your job's done. This is the time to start cashing in on it, to, you know, mm -hmm. to, be, to be crude. So yeah, so use your experience to charge more money to work less. That's yeah. this is it. This is our time. You know, ten years behind you doing what you're doing. This is your time to properly monetize that experience, whether it be through you know greater prices on the service side, or packaging up your experience as products or both. Yeah, I yeah, I completely agree. And I think some people, I know on Twitter, some people kind of shit on the idea of starting an agency sometimes um mm. and it can be hard it is hard sometimes and a lot of those years has been quite hard but when you've got the experience you've been doing it quite a long time 
I struggle to sell a $40 ebook on Gumroad, but I don't struggle to sell a 12, 24, 50 grand project, you know, mm. in one meeting. That's the difference between those two. And yeah, and the, you're selling your time and that time is over a series of months or whatever, maybe even a year. But that is still a lot of money and it's easy to sell when you've been doing it that long. Yeah. I think, I think uh, people get too hooked on the uh, complete passive income route because it's for 99.9% of people, it's not achievable. And there's still good money to be made in the service industry, especially if you're really good at what you do, you've been doing it for a long time and you know, you've got specific expertise. And like we said before, you can feed both into each other to really raise your profile and then raise prices across the board on the product side and the service side. So now you've got 16,000 followers or something on Twitter. Have you risen yeah. your prices on the agency side? On, well, to be honest, I've not really seen that as a direct connect. It's been a little bit different for me because... It's weird, actually, because I talk about freelancing, I talk about business, but I have had people coming to me that because of that presence, even though it's nothing to do with development, like what you said before, still want to work with me because they see that I've built some kind of authority, even in an adjacent topic. Mm. So I don't really attribute followers. There's no relation between follower count and pricing on the service side for me. Um, I always, I just increase my prices all the time anyway. Mm. Um, and obviously I try and base it on value as well. So I try and think about, because to me, every project's different. And I like to try and think how much is something worth to the company that I'm going to be working with? How much value can I provide them? And then try and reflect that in the price that I give them. So yeah, there's not really been a, you know, like a, a relationship in terms of a graph in terms of followers and, and pricing, but I can definitely see how in your, from your perspective and in the content, context that you're working in, the more followers that you have and the more authority that you build in the design world, that should definitely, definitely reflect your service industry pricing. It's funny. I've spoken to a few people about this and it depends what platform you build on mm. and what you're showing. Because I, I know a couple of people who've got 100, 200, 300,000 followers on Instagram, um, you know, sim, similar on Dribble, well, less on Dribble, but comparatively similar on Dribble. Um, and almost exclusively, people who've built a following for their design skills on these platforms don't command high prices. They get messages all the time how much for a logo? $1,000 is too much blah, 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 that kind of thing. So that it is, I find it really weird, specifically with design. I've been very careful not to build my kind of following and the things I talk about exclusively on how pretty my design work is because I'm not the best mm. designer in the world um, and I can produce pretty things, but it isn't everything that I offer. It, it isn't the whole mm. pa the whole package. Working with the designer isn't about picking the one that can make the prettiest graphics. So I've been very careful with the way that I've done it to talk about the fundamentals of design, to talk about how important the idea is behind things and set up a side project that is actually about ideas. So whilst you think it might might relate directly, when anybody's come to me directly for something visual it doesn't relate because it doesn't command a high price design is cheap but mm. when it's come through other things i've said where it's been more of a consultancy process yeah absolutely it does so it, it's really weird with design it, it's really hard to manage i think across the board though it's that it's that personality if, if you can portray a personality and couple that with some kind of service that's, you know, related to what the business is buying, then they will see that no matter really what content you're sharing. I think um, I saw you did an episode with uh, Connor Fowler and he talked about how if you talk about design all the time, you would just attract other designers and not potential business partners. And I, I really agree with that. And 
I think there's another angle as well where do you want to just talk about design all the time or do you want to explore some other things that interest you? And that's what it is for me. That's what Twitter is for me. It's the outlet to let the business side, the marketing side of me as a freelance developer come out and have an outlet and build uh, something that's just beyond me sitting behind a code editor every day. And I think that that is valuable, not just to me, but to other people as well who might want to work with me in some kind of capacity Um, or even just in terms of building a network or opening up myself to opportunities, you know, for the future and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think it's interesting because I also think that not all followers are equal. So what, what, what I mean by that is like I've seen accounts on Twitter with like, you know, 40, 50, 60, 100,000 followers launch eBooks and only do this, get the same amount of sales as what I have. And I've spoken to a few of these accounts and they're always shocked about how well my launches always seem to go. And they, they think it's because what I tweet is a little bit different to what a web developer would usually tweet or would be expected to tweet. And that's kind of been intentional. That's kind of what I've always gone for. I've not wanted just to be, this is no offense to anyone posting like code snippets, but that's just not for me. You know, that's not, that's not the approach that I've wanted to take. I've got more of a passion for the business side of freelancing. And I think it's a little bit of a different angle. So yeah, that's one thing that I've noticed as well, that you've got your follower types. So the content that you put out definitely determines who's going to follow you, number one, and and how you frame it and how you present it. And also not all followers are equal. So while you know, a follow account does hold some bearing and does suggest that someone's a valuable account to follow. It's, it's nowhere near as important as what sometimes you think. Yeah, you're completely right. I think what you've done with development is the same way I approach design mm. by you, were uh, you infer skill by talking about other things or attaching the topic to another thing. So you might be, I don't know, random off the top of my head. You might be talking about stoicism but what you're actually mm. talking about is web development, that kind of thing, where you infer the skill through talking about a higher level topic rather than just saying JavaScript shit or, or whatever. <laughs> you would never say that. That's, that's like social suicide. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean, though? You, 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 yeah, play, yeah. you kind of play the same game that I do. I, one, thing, one reason why I think you've done so well on Twitter and your launches do so well though is actually a differing tactic to the way that I approach Twitter. You are very, 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 very specific with what you talk about freelancing. Everything you talk about is about freelancing. And even if it isn't about freelancing, you tie it back to freelancing. Whereas my approach with Twitter, and I thought quite a lot about this after thinking about the design thing and talking to Connor and stuff like that, about Mm. if you just talk about design, you attract designers. I wanted to go the other way. I wanted to build a personality, a personal brand, basically. I wanted to build a brand around me. So what I did was make podcasts and, you know, other Twitter accounts and other projects and all that kind of thing. And I didn't specifically just talk about design. Design was just another project that I was doing. So I did it that way, which means that my growth is a lot slower but mm. it means that people come and follow me. Going back to that point about um, not all followers are equal. Somebody follows me because they've they've seen like a, a weird thing that I do or they like the way that I speak on Twitter. It isn't just because I'm a good designer. And that that's the way that I wanted it. And I think that's the way that you've done it to some extent as well, that people aren't following you for code snippets. You don't show that kind of thing. They're, fo- they're following you for the higher level stuff. People mm. appreciate the higher level stuff way more. Mm. No, I think I think you're right. I think the thing that I always say is go really narrow with what you talk about until people care enough about what you know your wider views on things. Mm. And I think that's kind of where I'm now. I'm just I'm, I'm on that cusp over the last like few months where my life's changing anyway, you know, I'm doing more things than just freelancing. So it's back to that disingenuous uh, feeling again, you know, 
I want to be as honest and as open as possible on my social media because that's the only way I know how to be. That's how I am in real life. You know, there's what you see is what you get. And I think if, when I started, I'm just talking about freelancing, freelancing, freelancing. That's because that's all I was doing, freelancing. I was trying to build an audience. That's what I knew best. But now I've got to like this like level and my interests are naturally diverging and my business opportunities are expanding and going into different places. I think because people... I have built a level of personal brand. People do know about me now as, you know, what I've done. They're also interested in what I might do in the future as well. And I think that's what's, that's what's really good about building an audience is you can, you can, it's malleable. You can modify it as you go if you're authentic. And I think that these accounts that just tweet about one thing for years and years and years, I always question the, authenticity of those and yeah it kind of it would be too hard for me to just tweet about freelancing for five six seven years if i wasn't just freelancing i think there's there's two get there's two games on twitter that i see people playing there's the game where people clearly have experience and they are sharing their experience that's the Mm. game game that you and i play no matter what we talk about we talk about things we know because you know, we're honest Yorkshire lads. And then <laughs> there's the other game that a lot more people play, and it's the engagement game. And they will pretty much write anything on Twitter, whether they know anything about it or not, purely to get the mm. engagement. And those accounts grow stupidly quickly on Twitter. But at the end of it, there there isn't a personality because they're not talking about things that they innately know. They're just saying them for the engagement. And I talk about that a lot on Twitter and it bugs me because when you've been on Twitter for a while, you can spot it instantly. You know you know who's doing it, you know who's not doing it. And mm. it's it's a short term it's a short term gain. Uh short term gains for short term gain. And it won't turn into anything long term. Um those are the two ways that I see it anyway on, on Twitter. Mm, I think there's only so far that you can take that as well. Like if, yeah. if you're bullshitting, you're going to get found out sooner or later. You might, you might make 10, 20 grand on eBooks for a year, but you're probably going to get found out sooner or later. And for me, I just couldn't live like that. I know it sounds a little bit preachy, but that's just not, that's just not how I'd want to be. You know, it's, it's why when I first started on Twitter, I didn't talk about design at all. And I was talking about consistency and procrastination and all this kind of thing. And I really, mm. I really, really backed off on it after a couple of months because I felt like I, I wasn't the right person to talk about it. I didn't have enough experience with it. I did. I did. But yeah. it didn't feel right. So I started talking about design. And then that's when things started progressing a little bit more. And now I've figured that out. I introduced some of that back in because really... Mm. It's the thing that most people know about me on Twitter. It isn't the design stuff. It's the fact that I do it every day. It, the, it, I could be doing anything, anything every day. It doesn't matter what it is. I had a, me- a message. Someone tweeted me earlier today, Alexander, saying, I want to see how much Craig could make me do in 30 days. <laughs> people don't know me for the design. It's just for the consistency thing. So It's like what I call you. <laughs> Mr. <Yeah>. Consistency. <laughs> yeah, it, it is It is weird how Twitter works. But none of that would have happened if I wouldn't have been myself. If I would have yeah. been, from that very beginning, hammering consistency constantly, saying it rather than doing it, I wouldn't be in the position I am now. Well, that's why people believe you, because you do it, you're proof. Do you know what I mean? And, and I think it's like what you said before, you can spot you can spot imposters pretty easily when you've been on Twitter for as long as what we have. And if you're preaching what you're not practicing, then it, it, it comes across pretty easily for an experienced eye. And the reason that people associate you with this consistency thing is because you're so bloody consistent, you know, it's proof of work every single day. And that's why, you know, your reputation has been built off the back of that and your account, you know, continues to grow, but grow in the right way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I add a couple of followers every day. Nothing impressive. It's been pretty much the same since I started doing it. But that's the mm. way I like it. 
because that's the way they're genuine followers that are going to add every day. And uh, every, I don't know, every couple of months I have a spike, something happens, whatever. But it grows the right way. It's slow, consistent growth that I can understand that makes mm. sense. Rather than some, uh, some of the other people I've seen who've grown bloody 3,000 followers in, in a month. Uh, that that's That's, for me... I wonder if you felt the same when you grew like this as well. Going from 1,000 followers to 5,000 or 4,000 where I'm at now is a very different game. And if it mm. if it would have happened to me overnight, I wouldn't be able to handle the 5,000 followers. Mm. Yeah, it's... Um, I think, yeah, once you get to 1,000, that, that's a change. Then you get to like four or 5,000, that's another change. And then you get to 10,000 and you might as well just turn your DMs off <laughs> because it's, it, it's, you start getting the weird and wonderful as well. You know, it's not just, it's not just volume. You start to attract more weird shit as well when you get to like 10 K plus. So that, that's one thing that I noticed anyway. And yeah, you've got to pick and choose your, not battles, but who you reply to and who you don't. Um, so yeah, the, I know exactly what you mean. It's if you would have had that overnight, like from 500 followers to 15,000 followers, you wouldn't know what to do with it anyway. No, I'm pretty much open Twitter a few times a day now, reply to things that people have replied to my tweets and close it again. I pretty much have no time mm. to look at anyone else's content other than a curated list that I've got, which I look at on tweet deck because it's the only way mm. I can see it. And even now to the point, if I have a, I don't know why Twitter started doing this, but it really pisses me off. If I have a tweet where 10 or 20 or 30 people reply to it, Twitter doesn't show me all the replies. So I at least like to try and reply to everybody, but Twitter yeah. is changing that. The only thing I've found to do it with is TweetDeck, where it actually shows you every single reply. Although, not to plug Hype Fury again, but apparently they're working on something to solve that. <laughs> <laughs> No, I've not I've not noticed that actually, but I think there has been times when someone's replied to my tweet that I actually really would like to reply to and I've I've completely missed it and then I've rediscovered it later on mm. and I felt bad about it. Um but I just think it, it's a volume issue anyway. You know, one person can't reply to absolutely everything. Um even even at like one, two, three, four thousand followers, it becomes difficult and a job in itself. Um so yeah, I mean, anything that you can do with scheduling tools like Hype Fury, Feed Hive, and things like that, then uh, it definitely helps out. Yeah. So, so you you're at like sixteen thousand followers on Twitter now. If somebody wanted to replicate, so I've got a friend who's a developer. He's been a developer for a couple of years. I keep telling him to get on Twitter. He won't. He won't mm. fucking listen to me. Um, how would you tell somebody what what should they do first? How should they approach Twitter? They should get used to writing every day. Look at what other people are doing. Not necessarily what they're actually tweeting, but the way that they're structuring the tweets. And try to come up with a system that allows you to write like 10, 15 tweets in an hour. That, that's what I do. I, I tweeted something out, um, I think it was a few weeks ago now, and one of my techniques for batching tweets, like using a Hype Fury or a Feed Hive or whatever, mm. is to open notes, think of like five like really broad ideas that I have that I mention a lot, because obviously we know the power of repetition in marketing and audience building, and then zoom in on each one of those and think of as many spin-off tweets as I can per point. And that usually within an hour now, after a year or two of writing tweets, gives me like 20 that I can schedule and that's me done for the week. Um, so yeah. Oh, you do it all in one day then? Yeah, like today I did, in an hour, I think I did yeah, like 22 tweets and just scheduled them all. But I mean, I still do off the cuff stuff as well. Mm. Um, and to be honest, the off the cuff stuff usually does better now at my follower count than the scheduled stuff. Um, obviously the tweets do the best, uh, the threads, sorry, do the best. But yeah, the off the cuff stuff kind of works just as good. Um, but I mean, that relates back to what I was saying before, like people care more about the personal stuff that I share now than what I did at the beginning yeah. when I was just, you know, hammering on, you know, the one topic. Um, so yeah, that's what I would advise. Definitely try and get into the habit of writing 
tweets every day, look at what, how other people are structuring stuff and what's doing well for other people. Like obviously threads at the minute are overpowered. Mm. So you want to be doing at least a thread every two or three weeks. Um, and just talk about stuff that you know, you know, don't, don't try and bullshit anyone because eventually you will come unstuck. And I think people can tell when a tweet's being written with passion or written under duress, especially like a thread, you know, trying to, for- have you ever tried to force write a thread? Wait, it just, is hard. I just don't write them. I haven't written one for a while because I can't, I ain't got an idea for it and I can't do it. So I just don't write it. <laughs> I'm sure you could though. I'm sure you could. It's just when you try and sit and like, I'm going to write a thread, any good thread as it's hard. It's really, really hard. But all the ones that have done really well for me have just come like that, you know, just mm-hmm. con- just easy. Boom, 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 boom. Like pricing freelance projects. Um, and then I did one last week about, um, you know, how to like have a bit of a better work-life balance as a freelancer, but still earn a decent amount of money. And that that's just, you know, reciting from experience, short and snappy tweets. And then that did well as well. So yeah, watch what other people do. Come up with a system that makes it easy for you to write tweets. Schedule them if, if you want to, um, but don't be scared to do off-the-cuff stuff as well. What do you think about if you're a new developer? What do you think about using it for networking rather than being an authority? I think it can work really well. Um, I, I'm mentoring a few freelancers um, who are at the beginning of their like careers and social media journeys. And a lot of them I've managed to make friends with people who are maybe like a one step in front. Mm. And that's been really beneficial because there's not only the learning aspect of that and following in their footsteps as a developer, but there's also a business um, benefit as well. So let's say for instance, a freelancer might be at capacity. Who was the first person that they're going to go to? Someone that they made friends with on Twitter who's, you know, needs a start. You know, I think there's a definite networking angle for freelancers and service providers on Twitter, as well as becoming, you know, um, an authority or someone who wants to sell products or whatever. I think one of the best people I know has done it was um, Catalin Pitt. I hope he uh, he's got, I don't know, 60 or 70,000 followers on Twitter now. And he just started sharing what he knew, which was very little when he first started. But what, what I really like about that tactic is that it works for anybody. Doesn't matter how much experience you've got or how little or how much. If you just share what you learn, it's honest. It's easy to do because you're doing it every day anyway. And really, even now, me and you, that's all we're doing. Every single mm-hmm. tweet that we write is just a reminder to us to ourselves, really. It's something that's popped up. You know, you've been having a chat with a client or you've run into it situation or a difficulty or something like that every single tweet i write i said it the other day every tweet is a subtweet and Mm -hmm. something has happened to spring that into my mind and even now i'm writing tweets about things that i've learned that's that's all it is at any level yeah no definitely i think that that's what a lot of content creation actually is when it when you when you really zoom out and see what it all is it's everyone's just going through life learning having experiences, teaching, picking things up from other people. And that's all that content creation is anyway, whether you're a beginner or an expert. It's your it's your stamp, your reciting of your experience and knowledge. And even as a beginner, when you're learning, you know, programming or design or whatever, there's absolutely zero downside to you sharing what you're learning as you're learning it. I, I, I can't see a, a, a reason not to do it. Like, yeah, it's a little bit scary in the beginning. You know, you, you don't want to look stupid or whatever, but you can't, you're a beginner. It, it's, it's just, you're doing it anyway. Like you said, it's, you might as well just, you might as well share it and help someone else along who's one step behind you or whatever and get the attention of people who you want to network with who might give you a bit of work. When I finally got over the fact that I look stupid 99% of the time, <laughs> I, that's when I actually started making content yeah it's yeah it is weird i I will like that i often say i wish i would have kept a blog throughout all of my career now it's like probably only regret that i've got in the world that i did a blog for a year when i was learning how to be a designer and then i stopped bang on at the end Mm. of it and i've got this 
and it's still online now. I've got this this blog that I wrote for a year or two that talks about how I were learning, the way that I were writing then was very different, the things that I was interested in was very different. And imagine that if you would have kept that for yeah. bloody fifteen years. I I would have been a god by now, Tom. I, I, I would have been a Naval or something. <laughs> Seth Gordon. Yeah. Uh, that 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 is one of the most important points, I think, that you look at anybody in any industry, anybody who's at the top of it, um, anybody who's seen as an expert or whatever, all they've done is been making content. It's only only thing they've done. Seth Gordon has written a load of books and he's got a daily blog. Jack Butcher has been making visuals every day for bloody years. All of these people, the only reason they're where they are is because they just decided to make content. It's just that you and I are just both really late to it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think you've got a good point. Like obviously, the consistency point's like rammed home. It's almost become cliche, but it's cliche because it's true. And there's nothing much truer than being consistent and having the balls and the guts to put yourself out there for criticism. And I think that people respect that because there's a, I think that there's a part of everybody that wishes that they could do it. That wishes that they had the guts. And there's definitely a part of me, like I think there's a part of you that 10 years ago when we started out in business, wishes we were doing then what we're doing now. Yeah, I, I completely do. I wish, I wish I was. And I, I flirted with it a few times. I had a blog. I took Twitter a bit more seriously, but I just, I couldn't work it out. I couldn't work out what, mm. the, what they were doing. So I don't know if you were saying, but I used to go to development conferences and design conferences and stuff like that. And I used to see people that were stood on the stage. And I, I, I knew even then, with a couple of years design experience, that they weren't the best designers that I'd ever seen. In fact, yeah. I were almost better than them, even with only a couple of years of experience. But they were stood on the stage and I was sat in the audience and I followed them on Twitter and I read the newsletters and I listened to the podcasts and things like that. And it always used to bug me. Why are they there and I'm here? And I couldn't, mm. I, I could never, I didn't have the language or the marketing understanding as to what it was. And, and even now, when I look back on some of those people, so for example, Ari Roberts, you know, CSS Wizardry, do you, you know who he mm -hmm. is, don't you? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I did my first talk on the same stage as him. Uh, as uh, No, I was there as a replacement and everybody knew who Harry Roberts was. And even then, the only reason Harry Roberts has got to where he is is because he had a blog that he kept and he wrote in it multiple times a week about CSS. He kept it specific. He wrote about CSS. And all of that time he spent writing on his blog turned into a bloody career eventually. Yeah. Uh, and and now he's, he's like he's a performance expert and he works with Google and Airbnb and everybody all around the world purely because he wasn't afraid to have a blog all the way back then. And actually, mm. even with a year experience, share what you learned. He only ever shared what he learned just... And that was specific CSS stuff. It's crazy. Yeah. And, and and it's like, I think I've done a few tweets on this as well. It's it's not always the best developer or designer that gets paid the most. No. It's the best developer or designer that's also shit hot at marketing. And that's just a fact of life, you know. And I think that sharing what you're doing, selling your sawdust as you do it, no matter what level of expertise you're at, is the best marketing tool at someone who's looking to build any personal brand authority's disposal. I think I think you probably agree with me. Marketing is is the number one thing. And I I never appreciated it. But I, I've spent ten years building an agency with a bunch of guys doing it a really, really hard way when mm -hmm. we we could have probably accelerated our success by not being so stubborn about marketing ourselves. If we would have just mm. got, got into it and actually done some stuff, it probably would have been a lot easier and a lot quicker. Yeah. Look, it's, it's good to know that you're good, but people need to know that you're good. You know, like what, what's point in being, you know, best app developer in the world if nobody knows it? You know, it, marketing's always going to be an important piece of the puzzle. 
if not the most important piece. I'd I'd argue that if nobody knows you're best in world, you're not best in world, are you? You're best in well. There in, you go. You're best in Barnsley. Best oh. in town. Yeah, <laughs> whatever way you want to put it. Um, <laughs> I w- I've, we'll we'll finish off in a second, but t- we've got a question on YouTube. Tessa's dropped a question. Um, I'm just trying to word it in a way that you might understand it. So, she said, "What if someone really did experience something?" And it got shut mm. down and deleted in the process of sharing it. What advice would you give to someone on how to restart it? She's put reproach it, but I think she might mean restart it. So what if you've started something and then you've got to go back and do it again? How would you start it? What What does she mean? Do you, does she mean like a project or a, a tweet or what? I think she's talking about marketing because it came in at that point. So to, okay. fr- to phrase it in a way that, we actually understand. Tessa, if you've yeah. got any follow-ups, please give me them. Um, if you were to start again tomorrow, I know this is a really cliched question, but if, <laughs> if, if you were to start again tomorrow, well, you are doing with the agency, right? Yeah, a little bit. What What would you do differently this time around? What would I do different? Well, I would stop being everything to everyone as quick as I could. I, I did it pretty quickly anyway. Mm. I, I went, I niched into WordPress after about six months anyway, but I would do it on day dot this time. Um, and like you said, with the agency thing, I've gone even narrower. I found a niche within the WordPress niche for this one. Um, so yeah, I think push past that fear of thinking that you're cutting people out and you're limiting your chances by niching down and narrowing your focus into a specific technology or a specific market or a specific, you know, stand that you want to stand on basically in an authority game. Um, How are you going to promote it? Are you going to do any specific promotion for it? Yeah, I'm going to go with organic SEO because that's what worked well for my freelance career. Like my, as you've seen with the course, the personal website playbook, my personal website must get at least 10 leads a week through organic SEO, through highly focused um, service landing pages. So what I'm going to do with the agency, again, it's going to be, that's going to be my main source of uh, marketing and content marketing, basically. I'm just going to write articles about headless WordPress and how that relates to, you know, business upside for people in specific industries and how we can pair technologies together and things like that. So yeah, that's going to be the, that's going to be the main marketing angle, but obviously I've got a bit of a personal brand as well now and a bit of a platform on Twitter. Mm. So that all feeds in. Like I started a new, um, a new Twitter account for the agents and it's got 200 followers already. And I've, I, don't, I don't think I've posted anything yet. Mm. So I'm in a bit of a privileged position already with, you know, the marketing side of that, but yeah, co- content marketing for me is the, the stalwart really that everyone should be focusing on, whether that's content for SEO in terms of articles and blog posts or whether it's, you know, social media content. I think it's the best bang for book for the book for anyone. I'm, I'm completely sold on it now. Content marketing, making a Twitter account, whatever way you approach it, because you've just got an asset that you can move as you're finding now. You've got an asset you can move to anything that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's literally potentially unlimited income across anything that you do from now to the future, your Twitter account's only going to grow and it's only going to get easier and easier to to point that to different directions as you move on. Yeah, definitely. And it just, it all compounds as well. So like for me now getting hundred followers in a day is not uncommon, but I would have, you know, begged for that right at the beginning. So <laughs> again, consistency again. And once you get over that hill, you start running downhill eventually. Love it. So we'll leave it there because we're at an hour now. Bloody hell. That went quick, didn't it? That went quick, eh? Uh, thanks a lot for coming on. It's been awesome. We'll have to do it again sometime. Maybe in person at some point soon. Hopefully over a pint or something. Yeah, I've got I've got all this set up over here. There's another mic over there, all this podcasting room, and I can only use one side of it and we're on Zoom. <laughs> yeah, uh, have you got anything you want to say to leave us with? No, just uh, thanks a lot, Craig, for uh, hosting this. It's been fun, and I hope it's not as long 
as it was last time before we speak again. <laughs> yeah, let's chat again soon. Cheers, man. See you later, mate.